Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here with us uh, this morning, and I'm excited uh, that we get to continue our series that we started last week in the Ten Commandments, uh, because I'm hopeful uh, that as we spend the next ten weeks in the Ten Commandments that it will impact us by personal transformation and in our mission as a church. I think it's easy for us to drive a wedge between the law of God and the grace of God. So I pray we will see the love and grace of God in his law so that more and more we will reflect and glorify God in our outside and in our inside. And I deeply believe that if God is transforming us personally by his love and grace and we are living lives that are reflecting his glory, walking this path of perfect freedom that he's given us in his law, then the church of Jesus Christ and specifically Christ Central Church will be a church that's not blown back and forth by the cultural winds, but rather a purging force of change for the good of Durham. We're going to be spending the next 10 weeks in Exodus chapter 20. And we have to remember who is receiving these commandments. The Israelites are receiving these commandments, and they were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. Their life was painful and torturous. It was so difficult that it's been referred to as the iron furnace, their life in Egypt. It was a life of making bricks, and not just the type of bricks that we might use today. They were bricks more like cinder blocks, and they labored in scorching heat seven days a week without a break. And if they had a child, their child was born into inherited the same back-breaking, sweltering heat, never-ending labor. And just prior to Exodus chapter 20, the Israelites are set free from this bondage by the power of God. But these are ex-slaves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai, and God gives them the commandments. Two times in the epistle of James in the New Testament, James refers to the law as the law of liberty. The law and the commands of God are the true path of freedom and liberty. Israel has been set free for a purpose. We, the church, have been set free for a purpose, to walk in our newfound freedom and in that freedom to worship and serve God. So God speaks to his people. I'm going to ask you to stand as he speaks to us this morning. Out of Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, short passage looking at the first commandment. This is God's word to us. God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would now speak to us by the power of your spirit to our spirit would you reveal unto us the gods that we might serve that are not you. And would you exalt Jesus? Would you lift high Christ this morning that our hearts and our minds and our full affections would be turned to you and to, to leave here transformed walking in step with you? Lord, I pray that you would remove me, the preacher, so that Christ and Christ alone is communicated and exalted and I do pray that the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, a friend of mine shared with me a story from 1974. Patty Hearst was a millionaire heiress. She was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was an American revolutionary and terrorist organization that was active here in the States from 1973 to 75. And within a few months of being kidnapped, she sank to joining up with her captors. She took the name Tanya. And after a few months of being part of the Symbionese Liberation Army, she was involved in a bank robbery in which a woman was killed. It was a local woman from a church who was depositing that week's offering at the bank. The thing so intriguing about this is that Patty Hearst became a co-conspirator in her own kidnapping. She became enamored with her own jailers, so much so that she did not know she was enslaved. After some time, the army could take the handcuffs off of her because her idolization of her captors were her chains. And when anybody tried to free her or liberate her, she would sneer and resist. Her protest of freedom was evidence of her slavery. This morning, we're going to look at the power of things that enslave us. But even more so, the liberating love of God. And these things that enslave us and hold power over us, the Bible calls them idols. They're small gods, small lords, pseudo-lords, pseudo-gods. And when someone comes along to liberate us, we can often sneer and resist. Because like Patty Hearst, we've become enamored by our own captors. Our very adoration of them is what binds us to them. God's a God of love and liberation. He sets his people free from bondage with the purpose to live in this freedom by worshiping and serving him. So I've got to state early that the wording of Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, and along with other scripture passages like Romans chapter 1, 18 to 23, and even Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17 when he is preaching to the church in Athens, it assumes, these passages do, that every person is a worshiper, that we all pledge allegiance to something. People throughout history have echoed this scriptural truth. African Bishop Augustine in 4th century said this, My weight, I my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. That is a poetic way of saying, whatever I love most, that I follow and obey. German reformer Martin Luther said in the 16th century, to have a God is to have something the heart trusts entirely. A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we take refuge in all distress. And then just 10 years ago, Professor and author David Foster Wallace, who is not a Christian and sadly took his own life, said this in a commencement speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everyone is a worshiper. Are there people who don't believe in the supernatural? Yes. And you might be one of them, and we're glad you're here with us this morning. 
But are there people who don't worship something, who don't have a primary love and primary allegiance? No. We're all worshipers. The God of the commandments wants to set us free. And the commandments are the pathway for us to travel in true freedom. So we're going to look at two simple things this morning. We're going to look at the God of the commandments, and then we're going to look at the great commandment of God. Let's look first at the God of the commandments. God is speaking to ex-slaves who've been liberated, and and he starts by telling them who he is and what he has done. Before any command, before any call to what his people are to be and do, God roots them in who he is and what he has done. Look at verse 2. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord. That's God's covenant name. It's the name Yahweh. It's not a title like creator or redeemer. It's his name. And Yahweh, God's name, was so revered that you could not speak it out loud. Yahweh is the name used of God in Genesis, in creation. It's the name used of God in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked, Whom shall I say sent me? And God says, Tell them, Yahweh has sent you. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the creator I am the rescuer. I am who I am in every moment and in every action. In this name, God is making a double claim on Israel's life. A paternal claim and a marital claim. He is declaring that he is the father over them in creation. I am who I am to you as I was in creating all things. And I am who I am to you covenanted to you like a marriage covenant. I am faithfully committed to you. I am your God. There are two ways that we can read your in English. We can read it in its plural form, referring to a group of people. Or if you grew up in the South like me, you can say y'all, right? Or it's in the singular form, you, to a person. In the Hebrew, the singular is used here in Exodus 20. You. You, you man, you woman, you child, I am your God. You know, relationships that say I and you are personal relationships. And you handle personal relationships different than impersonal relationships or relationships with objects. Persons make claims. They communicate, they ask, they request, they require, you give, you take. A Christian's relationship to God is personal. It is an I-you affair. Our God is not a cosmic genie in a bottle, but a personal, intimate God. Can you imagine being at the foot of Sinai? And Moses is on the top of this mountain, and the mountain begins to shake with thunder and burn with fire, and lightning begins to flash, and then God speaks, I am the Lord, your God. Each and every one of you, I am your God. It's personal. And he says, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what God has done. He has redeemed his people from slavery. God is the redeemer. And his relationship to his people is founded upon redeeming love. Before any command, 
God says who he is and what he's done. And then he gives the first command. And I'm calling it the great command of God. That's my second point. The great command of God. He says, you shall have no other God before me. And again, he uses the singular you. 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 You shall have no God before me. You in your real life. Public and private. You're outside and you're inside. You shall have no other God before me. I call this the great command because if you break this command, you'll break all the other nine commandments. To put it another way, the reason you break commandments number two through ten is because you break the first commandment. No other gods before me. God is saying, no other gods before me in my presence, in front of my very eyes. God's saying before me, he's not saying I'm to be number one in front of your number two, three, and four. He's saying there is not to be a hint of number two, three, and four. God is commanding total devotion, exclusive loyalty. Again, this is covenantal language, language of marriage. When a groom makes vows to his bride, he says, I take you and I promise to forsake all others. All other females. He does not say, I, I take you to be my number one romantic interest in front of number two and number three and number four. He declares that no other woman gets me like she does. All of my honor, all of my cherishing, all of my commitment, all of my intimacy is to her and her alone. A tribal chieftain once said, I would rather have the 7,777 commandments and prohibitions of the Torah Adah than the Ten Commandments of the Christians. For the Ten Commandments demand my whole heart, whereas the 7,777 ancestral commands and prohibitions leave room for a lot of freedom. That's true. God commands wholehearted devotion. An undivided heart, inside and outside devotion. The first command gets underneath all our other behaviors. The reason we don't take Sabbath, or the reason for our anger, lust, greed, covetousness, is because something besides God has our devotion. Something else has our loyal affection. Heard Another pastor referenced a TED Talk. If you don't know what a TED, a TED Talk is, these people put on these conferences for TED Talks, and you have like 10 minutes to give a talk or 15 minutes to give a talk. And this talk that was given was on the benefits of taking a cold shower. And in my opinion, there are no benefits. <laughs> to a cold, never a good reason for a cold shower. But the talk was given by an entrepreneur who had a lot of dreams and ideas and desires for a potential startup company but he had never pulled the trigger. And so some friends suggested that he meet up with this other entrepreneur who had started multiple companies and so that this man could kind of be a mentor unto him, pick his brain, and so they set up a meeting. And in this meeting, he told this mentor his dreams and visions and desires, and, and the guy asked, well, why have you not done this yet? And he said, well, my finances are pretty tight. Season of life's not very, very good right now. And the guy asked again, well, why have you not started the company yet? And the guy said, well, my finances are tight and season of life's not great. And 
And so the mentor suggests for the next 30 days that he take a cold shower. A cold shower is hurt. And so day one rolls around, and he's like, man, this is going to hurt. He's kind of pump himself up. I don't want to do this. And, and so he finally steps into the cold shower. 30 seconds, a minute goes by, and he feels fine. Day two comes, and it was worse because he actually knew what to expect and anticipate. And he's like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. I don't want to take a cold shower. And he finally gets up the courage, and he steps in again. And 30 seconds, a minute goes by, and he's fine. He does it again on morning three and four, all the way for 30 days. And in his TED Talk, he says, what I began to realize as I faced the prospect of a cold shower, as I faced the resistance of being uncomfortable, is that I realized all the impulses that were stopping me from getting in the shower were the same impulses stopping me from starting a company. Fear, worry, comfort. There were underlying feelings and thoughts and beliefs that were dictating behavior. This is what the first commandment says. Your underlying belief, your underlying idolatry dictates your behavior. The reason you fudge the truth, the reason you look at pornography, the reason you're filled with anxiety about the future is because you're breaking the first commandment. Your heart is devoted to something else besides God. So let me delve a little bit into idolatry. We've said this often here, but an idol is taking anything and making it ultimate. It can be and often is a good thing. God created things that are good, but we make them ultimate. And so let me give you a decent-sized list, not an exhaustive list of idols that I think grab our devotion, our affection. Work, education, possessions, body image, children, power, control, romance, love, the future, adventure, activism, nationalism, happiness, approval, self-expression, pleasure. The list of religions is far vaster than we've ever imagined. And so let me drive in on a few that I think apply to us. To the achiever types here this morning, this is you. If your success at school or your success at work or your success at the ideal home, right, or you have this kind of desire to be omnicompetent, and when you're not and those things uh, don't go as you would like, you're somewhat undone when you fail. The relational types in the room, this desire for approval from friends or neighbors, coworkers, and you're undone when relationships are not what they are supposed to be or what you had hoped for. To the nervous types in the room, this may be you if you desire safety and security and you need certainty. And you're undone when risk comes your way. Have you ever noticed why you can have a friend who is similar to you, but under a set of circumstances, they seem to do well and you come apart? And then under a different set of circumstances, you seem to do well and they're devastated. Why is that? Why do you dread some things and not others? Why do some things frighten you and others don't? Why do some things excite you and others don't? We're all undone by different things. The idolatry of our hearts are different. 
And so what are those things for you? What are those things for you? Created things, good things. You know, they're never intended to be ultimate things. They always leave us wanting and they never satisfy us. As one of my favorite singer-songwriters, David Wilcox, sings, there's a break in the cup that holds love. They're broken. They will never satisfy. And let me add that if you take anything besides God and you make it ultimate, this idol will ultimately lead to destruction. Think about it. What happens when you make happiness ultimate? Happiness is a good thing. But when it becomes ultimate, it can be the root of other people's misery. Or your race. Race is a good thing. The diversity of humanity is a beautiful gift of God's creation. But when your race becomes ultimate, it leads to things like slavery and the Holocaust. Or think about sex. It's a good gift. But when it becomes ultimate, it becomes the source of broken relationships and dehumanization of others and the exploitation of human beings. Right now, there are estimates of 20 to 30 million slaves in the world. 80 to 90% are sex slaves. Our idolatry runs rampant. And our hearts are constantly churning idol after idol after idol, replacing an old idol with a new idol. And I have to tell you, that the gods you had before becoming a Christian, you bring into your Christianity. You bring into your relationship with God and you bring into the church, which means there is a lot of idolatry inside as well as outside the church. So much so that I think many of us can make our Christianity an idol. That sounds strange, but I think it's true. Your greatest devotion can be to your spiritual disciplines. Your greatest devotion can be to your outward activism of, of justice and mercy and evangelism, to your ministry. And you are undone when you're not as disciplined as you should be. You are undone when you're not doing all that you could do for Jesus. And there's a huge difference between, be, between being convicted of sin because you're not following the Lord versus being crushed and personally undone because you're not living up to your standard of Christianity. Church, God and God alone is to be our devotion, complete, loyal exclusivity. And he offers us personal, intimate, loving relationship with himself, a God who redeems us from bondage. So what do we do with the idol-making factories called our hearts? How are we to have no other allegiance, complete loyalty and love for our God? Well, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 in the New Testament says, We love God because we get focused. Right? We love God because the New Year's rolled around and we're making New Year's resolutions. Right? We love God because we're fired up and now we're going to love him. No, 1 John chapter 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. That is how we love him, because he first loved us. And we know he loved us because Christ became a man. Yahweh became man and kept the law and got crucified, took our place, 
and we get credit for everything he's done for us. Anything you do that isn't done because Jesus is ultimate in your heart, mind, and soul is just behavior modification. And you've just erected a new idol. And so let me give you five quick steps to help you and to help me. And I've taken this from Tim Keller and my friend Marshall Brown as application, how to deal with our hearts in this first commandment. Here's the first step. Name it. Name your true God. Diagnose it. Again, there are different idols for every person in here. And our primal emotions actually can help reveal what our idols are. So ask questions like, what excites you? What scares you? What angers you? Those questions can help reveal your true God. Here's the second, not just name it, but unmask it. Lay bare the reality that you actually do serve and worship this. Be honest about it and then repent. In repentance, you're taking away its power. Third, rejoice. Rejoice in Jesus. The love of Christ is rich and free. And that we are offered to drink from his well that never runs dry. You know your idols don't care about you. Your idols don't care anything about you. God loves you. Here's the fourth step. Make good friends. You know the commandments were given to a community. We need people who know us well enough to love us, challenge us, and encourage us. That can happen in city groups, Bible studies, life groups. But even if you're in those, are you really honest with your friends? Are you honest with people? Do you have friends that you can be honest with? And then step number five, repeat steps one through four. Name it, unmask it, rejoice in Jesus, and involve other people. And put this on repeat cycle for the rest of your life. Over and over and over. And I want to end with a question that I know most of you ask, that I ask. And this might seem odd to end this way. But here's the question I know many people ask. What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? And I know we all wonder, what should I be doing? What will happen in the future? with my job, with marriage, with my children, with money. We wonder and worry about tomorrow, and we wonder about five years from now and ten years from now. So let me tell you God's will for your life. Have no other God before God. That is God's will, complete, loyal allegiance to Him in all things, public and private, your outside and your inside. Because every day I know there are 101 things for us to do, 101 things that we think through, 101 emotions that we experience. So what is God's will for our life? That Christ is ultimate in all things that we do. So when you wake up on Monday morning, what's God's will? Enthrone him in your heart by repentance and faith and then live your day. When you wake up on Tuesday, enthrone him in your heart and repentance, and faith, and live your day. When you wake up on Wednesday, enthrone him and live your day. And when you wake up on Thursday, enthrone him in your heart by repentance and faith and live your day. When you wake up on Friday, enthrone him and live 
your day. When you wake up on Saturday, enthrone Christ by repentance and faith and live your day. When you wake up on Sunday, enthrone him and live your day. We come every week together to worship in this place to be reminded that he is the one true God who rules and reigns in supreme love and supreme grace over all things. And he and he alone is deserving of wholehearted devotion. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would lead us to repent and to see you for who you are, the one true God, worthy of all of our hearts. Would we never think that we can love you because we are strong enough or focused enough or we're renewing ourselves enough. The only way we can love you first is when we're overcome by your love unto us. So help us see Jesus. Help us be honest about our idols and false beliefs and the ways that we live our lives and and then help us to rejoice in Christ to live the lives you've called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.